Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Wayne Warwick. I'm uh, a new elder here, so it's an absolute privilege to come and do the Bible reading today. And I also have the privilege of serving on the Kids Life Ministry, um, but just the uh, face at the front signing in, not the, uh, the talent that James and his team have in there for your children. So if you uh, have a, a Bible or a device, um, the, the reading for this morning is Genesis 16. So I'm reading from the New International Version. So you can read along with me or just sit back and take this uh, amazing story in. So chapter 16 of Genesis, Hagar and Ishmael. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, <clears throat> but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. She slept with, he slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. <clears throat> Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you were like me and you grew up in a Pentecostal church and someone says, thanks be to the Lord, you're like, that's nice. But for others, they know that there's actually something we do as a community there, right? We say, praise be to God. So let's try it again in raucous response. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Praise be to God. I realize I got it wrong. I grew up at Pentecostal. So if you're joining us online, massive welcome today. Thank you for being with us. And I just want to say, Wayne did a great job as an elder. That is not necessarily the story I would want to have to read as my first time on platform reading a Bible story. If you're like, oh, why is that? It's because you probably weren't listening to the details of what was happening in that narrative. So let me just highlight, this is a hard story. This is a bit of an awkward story today. There's brokenness in this. 
And so I'm going to get there in a moment, but um, I just want to highlight, if you're sitting there going, what the heck did we just read? I join you in that. But let me talk about something a little bit more uh, exciting. Last week, we uh, sat under the teaching of our new wonderful associate minister, Fiona Blair. How awesome did Fiona do last week? It was great. And, uh, and this Wednesday night, we get to actually welcome Fiona officially into the life of our church. Fiona is a minister in the Uniting Church, and one of the most important parts of her commencement is actually the induction ceremony this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And this is not just about Fiona. This is about us. This is about the life of what God is doing in our story, in our community. So if you are free on Wednesday night, love to see you here at 7 p.m. If you're not free at Wednesday night, ring your mum, cancel dinner, and come along at 7 p.m. We would love to see you there. Hey, um, on that note, I'd just love to begin with prayer. Prayer number one, that I preach short enough that the sausages don't get cold out in the courtyard. And then number two, uh, prayer, just because of the reality, as I was rehearsing this morning, you hear my voice is a little hoarse. Um, but I just felt the weight of this story. And, and it's just, it's not a nice story. It doesn't start nice. It does finish well. But it takes a while to get there. And so I just need some help today. Is that okay? Would you join with me as we pray? God, whether we're joining online or in the room, we acknowledge, God, sometimes life is messy. I thank you that the scriptures don't reflect perfection, but that's often reality of brokenness and hurt. And you, you guide us through that. But Lord, today as we step in the story of Sarai and Abram and of Hagar, Lord, we, need, we need your help. God, I, I can't reveal the truths here. I can't do this. We need you, Holy Spirit. So we join in with the ancient prayer of the church. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Illuminate what human minds and hearts cannot see. May your truth be known. Anything I say today, not of you, may be forgotten, but only eternal truth may it sit in our hearts. Remove distraction and bring peace in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Less of me, more of you. Amen. Amen. Almost forgot that last part there. Friends, tonight, today, whatever kind of time of day you are watching this at, or if you're in the room and you're confused, it's still daytime, I want to talk about the weakness of faith. But if I had to give another title to today, I'd call it the danger of control. The danger of control. You know, it's great hearing these stories of Abram the last couple of weeks. But a lot of the stories have been about how Abram responds well to God, how he steps in and it's counted as his righteousness. Today, it's a story where things don't go well, where Abram doesn't respond well, where Abram gets it seriously wrong. And the reason why I've called it the danger of control is because I think that there is nothing more dangerous than when we long to be in control of everything in our lives. Have you ever felt out of control, friends? Has anyone else ever felt out of control? Remember one time I felt out of control was actually on this stage. We have a great youth ministry here at New Life run by Pastor Jason and Courtney and a great team of leaders. But um, it didn't always used to be that good. In fact, our youth ministry used to be really concerning. And a lot of people used to write into the lead minister saying, hey, I'm worried about the youth ministry. That's because I used to be the youth pastor back in the day. They might be like, oh, you're just, that's not true, Michael. Let me tell you one of the things that happened to me when I was youth pastor. I was uh, Jason and I, who was my assistant youth pastor at the time, were preaching. Jason was over there and we're talking about worship. And the idea was this, 
that worship is the full surrender of our life to God. And when we don't worship God, we try to control our lives. And that's really dangerous because you're terrible at being in control of everything. I'm trying to help teenagers wrestle with this concept. So we came up with a cool idea. Jason rode a bright red Vespa moped. I'm like, dude, you know what we should do? Let's put the moped on the stage. Don't ask anyone if we can. Let's just do it. So we wheeled out this moped on the stage. And the idea was I would sit on the Vespa. And as Jason was preaching about, you know, it's not wise for you to be in control of something you don't know how to do. I would start riding the Vespa across the stage really terribly. And then Jason would be like, Michael, you don't know how to control it because you don't know how to ride a bike. Let me show you how it's done. And then we'd use it as an analogy of how good is it when we trust God who should be in control. And what could go wrong in this moment? What could go wrong? What could go wrong is they put me on a machine I don't know how to co coordinate. So I'm there, I'm thinking, I don't know how to ride a moped. I, I, I've got to make this thing believable. I've got to make them think that I really don't know what I'm doing, but how hard can it be? So I'm like, needs a bit of gas. Why don't I give it a lot of gas? So I turn the accelerator on the whole way. The problem is, friends, I don't know how to ride a moped. So what I failed to realize is my other hand is clutching the brake at the same time. So I want you to picture, here's this youth pastor over here about to go straight across the stage. I don't know what's happening, but I put the brake on. And what Jason told me happens is something called whiskey throttling. Ultimately, I'm just burning out on the stage, on this moped, right? And everyone's like, this is awesome. And I'm like, what is happening? And I'm like, let go of a hand. And now in that moment, I had two choices, let go of the accelerator or let go of the brake. I don't know why. I think I was dropped on my head as a kid. But what happened was I let go of the brake. So in a moment, I'm pumping it with gas. I let go of the brake. And suddenly, I'm flying across the stage. And all the kids are like, yeah. And, and you know, at this point, I'm like, I got this, I got this. And Jason's like, he doesn't have this, he doesn't have this. I'm like, I got this, I got this. And then suddenly I get to this, this moment. I'm like, I don't have this anymore. This thing's not stopping because my mind just couldn't catch up to my hands, right? And so there's this moment where Jason's talking about what it looks like when you try to control your life ends in disaster. And here I am, a real life car wreck about to happen. I launched off this part. Now, no word of a lie. You can ask the youth, the guys that were there. I launched this part of slates. I don't hit where Kian's sitting. I'm in and back like four rows. I like, you know, I was like flying. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, they really want us to get prayer at the end of tonight. And I land, and they're like, they're, the whole place goes quiet. And all you can hear is this, right? And everyone's like, we killed our youth pastor. And I stood up, and I'm like, yeah! And I was like, yeah! And Jason's like, this is what happens when you don't worship God with your whole life. Get down the front for prayer. It was amazing. Revival, that's what's going to happen at youth camp. Send your kids to youth camp. Let's close the service. Let's pray. No. What is that? Why do I tell you that story? It's funny, number one. Number two, because I actually think that is a great analogy of how we live our lives. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I've got this. I'm not sure I've got this. Oh my goodness, the edge is coming. And then you're in the middle of a moment where you're like, how did I get here? As you sail through the air before 200 youth eyes and looking going, I've lost my job. Friends, they made me lead minister. <laughs> Joke's on them, hey? It's awesome. Why do I say that? Because what I think we need to realize is that in the story of Abraham, the greatest threat to Abraham's faith, the greatest threat to your faith, friends, is the desire to be in control. And it might just be me, but I love being in control. I love God bending his will to mine because I have a better idea because I know how the story should play out. 
But there is nothing more antithetical to faith than people who are like, I've got this. I've got this. I actually think today that for the Christian, those who have responded to Jesus, the one thing that they hold in common is a revelation of, I don't have this. See, faith, friends, we defined in the first week, is when we act in a way that is more dependent on the character of God than the limitations of man. If I had to you know, shorten it down, I said this simply, faith is active trust. Faith is active trust. And, and who you trust is who you are giving control of your life. So often we sing these songs of God of my present, God of my future. You write my story. You hold it all together. And then we go outside and we live a life as if that song was not true. And one of the things I would love to reflect on today is what does the place of faith and control have in your story? How much of your life is actually surrendered to God? Because in the story of Abram, we come into a scene that's quite difficult. That if we're honest, friends, whilst that's humorous, this scene that we just read is a car crash. It's devastating. And we're like, you don't have this, Abram. What the heck are you doing? But why do we feel this way? Because we know Abram's story up until now. In fact, if you've not been with us through the last couple of weeks, let me just remind you. In week number one, we looked at Genesis chapter 12, where Abram, this figure from the Old Testament in Genesis, thousands of years ago, is called by God. And God says, go to a land you do not know, and I will bless you to be a blessing. You will be the father of nations. And this is a beautiful promise. So Abram, as a response of active trust, obeys the call of God, trusts the promise of God, and follows in the footsteps of God. And this is a moment where we feel called to adventurous faith as well. So what happens to Abram? Well, there's a scene that we didn't talk about, but it's important for today. Abram follows God until a moment of hardship and famine where Abram chooses to go to a nation called Egypt. And he runs to Egypt because he needs to find provision for his family. There's a weird moment that happens between him and Sarai and Pharaoh that leads to a moment where Pharaoh feels obligated to Abram. And he provides Abram with provision in a time of famine. He gives him male and female servants and livestock. Now I say that, that's really important. Because there's a moment in Abram's story where God has said, trust me. And Abram runs and trusts the kingdom of men. He has a moment where God says, trust what I'm doing in my kingdom. Trust my character. And then there's a really telling moment where Abram chooses, no, I will trust the provision of men over the provision of God. Now, it's important to highlight Egypt in this because Egypt comes back in the story of Hagar. Now, what does God do in response to this? There's a couple other things that happen. But the next thing we looked at last week in Genesis 15 was a moment where God says to Abram, Abram, I want to bless you. I want to reward you. I want to honor you and, and give you a children. And Abram turns around to God. And like so many of us ask God, he says, prove it, God. How can I know you're going to say and do what you promise you will? Do I have to take this in control and, and, and just see my, one of my slaves become my heir? And God turns around to him. He takes him outside. He says, Abram, look at the stars. You're worried how I provide you a child. I'm going to provide you with nations. I'm not just doing one thing. I have an eternal story I am weaving with your story. So don't focus on your story. Come and live in my story. And God offers the same invitation to us today. So Abram turns around and goes, God, I want to trust you, but how can I know I can trust you? And God makes a covenant with Abram at the end of chapter 15, where he says, I will not break my word to you, Abram. I will give you a child. Now, why is this so important? Because if you were here with us last week, then there's a sense in this story where you're like, cool, God's about to move. 
God's at work. I can't wait to hear as Abram and Sarai have children. You know, it's just going to be amazing. But in Genesis chapter 16, there's this anticlimax where right after God said, you can trust me, we read in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, this. Now, Sarai and Abram's wife, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This should confuse us. Hang on, wait, wait, wait. God showed him stars. God promised Abram that he would do it. How come the story takes such a sad turn? And I think we're meant to ask this question because what's happening in Sarai is this. God, you have delayed. God, your promise has tarried. God, I don't know if you're going to do what you said. I wonder if there are people in this room who knows what it feels like for God to delay. For God to not respond on the timeline that you need. The timeline that you long for. How do you respond when God delays? When it feels like in your life God's dragging his feet in response to your prayers. This is what this moment is painting for us. Friends, I don't know about you, but I've felt this. God, where are you right now? I prayed. I'm rocking up a church. I just need you to do something. Genesis 16 verse 1 in Michael's life, but still he couldn't see the hand of God. I don't think it's just me that knows this story. See, so often, maybe it's a partner you've been waiting on, a financial moment of release, healing, deliverance, or just to know that God is at work in your story. As a church, sometimes we can be like, God, what are you? Ro- I've been rocking up at New Life for a while. Where's the move of God that we've been hoping for and waiting for? As a world, I heard people say to me this week, I am sad and questioning God right now. Where are you in the middle of Ukraine? Where are you in the middle of these moments as we cry out to you? How come you aren't responding as we see and see fit? God, where are you? Friends, I want to just highlight, this is a really human question. And it's a really important question we see often throughout the biblical narrative. But what happens in this moment as we hear that the promise has been delayed or seems to have been delayed is it's not so much that they're forced to wait. It's what the waiting reveals in Abram and Sarah. See, in Abram and Sarah, we read on and in response to the promise not coming in their timeline, we read, but the Lord, but she, but sorry, but she, Sarah, had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Now let's just highlight some things. This is an uncomfortable story. Maybe you're sitting here and you're going, man, whoa. Are we saying this is good? Are we saying this is okay? No, none of those things. I'm going to get there in a second. But I want to just come with me as we go a bit deeper into the text to understand a little bit of what's happening here. So the first thing I'd highlight is that when there's an arbitrary detail in the Bible, it's never an arbitrary detail. It's there for a reason. It points to something. And so when you read that this isn't just a slave, it's an Egyptian slave, there is something the writer is trying to highlight. This person, this Hagar, has a story. She's come from somewhere. Where do we know Hagar has come from? Well, remember back that when Abram was in a time of hardship, he looked to the provision of man rather than the provision of God and was given by Pharaoh male and female slaves. When did that happen? That happened the last time that Abram trusted in the kingdom of man rather than the kingdom of God to fulfill the promise. And here we see it again. 
that when you read Egypt in the story of Abram, but also in the story of the Israelite nation, it's nothing against Egyptian peoples. It's actually God highlighting that this is a native kingdom that you are trusting in instead of trusting in me. And it continues to play out through the story of the Bible that people choose to trust in man kingdoms rather than God's kingdom. So significant. Hold that thought for me for a second as we see what happens as Abram places his trust in the provision of man rather than the provision of God. The next thing that should strike us is that we look at what Sarai is offering to Abram and we go, this is not okay. This is weird. And I just want to join you in that and say, I'm not okay with this decision. But I want to guard you against something called chronological snobbery, where we look at something and go, wow, that's wrong because of our culture and our time and our age. So I want to make two points with this. If you look at religions back in those days and other cultures outside of the Hebrew faith, this practice isn't unknown. It's actually quite common. That what would happen in those days is that if a man and a woman were unable to have children, they would, they would find an ability to do that through one of their slaves. It was, it was common practice because an heir was considered vital to the continuation of the family line and the economic structure of that day. Now, I'm saying that because we can read this and we can be like, this is horrific. People back in that time would not have been horrified. This would have made sense. I say that, however... And I'm hesitant because what you may have heard me say then is this is okay, that this is right. That's not what I said. What I'm saying is that this was considered culturally appropriate. Why is that an important line to make? Because just because something is culturally appropriate does not mean it's ordained by or in the will of God. I want to say this again. Just because something is culturally appropriate doesn't mean it's ordained by or in the will of God. And so when we read back to this, it's important for us to realize that actually everyone in those days would have been like, this is how things happen. But we should pause and go, hey, this is not how things would happen. Not because of our Western 21st century culture, but because we know this is not how God wants to outwork his plan in the world. Why is this an important thing for us to highlight? Because how many times, friends, do we excuse decisions that we're making how many times in our life do we consider things okay because it's not illegal and it's not culturally inappropriate? Everyone else is doing it. And we look back at other times and go, wow, that's weird. But how many things are woven into the decision-making nature of our day where we've given permission to things that are not in the will or hand or desire of God for our life because everyone else does it? This is such an important point for us and it rests heavy with me because I, I know how confronting this is me, not just for you, but for me as well. See, in this moment, we recognize that sometimes when we want a partner and we're sick of waiting for God to provide for that, we look at culturally appropriate ways for accessing that promise, thinking that the end will justify the means. In the kingdom of God, the end never justifies the means. The means are part of what God wants to use to form his people. So when we start thinking through relationships and romance through the lens of how our culture does, we actually threaten to break the very fabric of how God has called us to live. When we start thinking about finances this way, well, it's not illegal and it's culturally acceptable. Ethical? Ah, it's neither here nor there. And we actually need to ask, hey, God, I'm not living under any other kingdom but yours. Is this the way that you have called us to be responsible, loving, and generous Christians with our finances? 
with our families, with our relationships, with our friendships. We're like, well, I could manipulate this situation or I could say this or do that. And the reason why I say this is too much of my life and our lives are excused because of cultural appropriateness rather than kingdom alignment. And I want to encourage you today that this is where they fall short. Because what happens is that Abram agrees to what Sarah said. Why? Well, this is why we align ourselves with culture. Because we go, well, that's where I want to go. And culture's providing me an easier way of getting there than waiting on God. Ultimately, what's the issue? It's a problem of patience. No one wants to hear the word patience. Least of all my son. A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of years ago, he wasn't even here. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, my wife was out the front of our house um, and she was chatting to a good friend and he was there too. And he goes over to our hose and he, he looks at mum and says, mum, turn the hose on, except in like two and a half year old language. And, and she says, that, I will in a second, Archer. Can you just be patient? He looks at her and he goes, I will not be patient. And we're like, holy smokes. But then when Sarah was telling me that story, I'm like, you know, wow, what are we raising as a son? You know, I'm sure you've got many parenting tips to give me after the service. But what I recognized was this was such a mirror reflection of how my soul reacts. Hey, wait, I will not wait. Now, I may not be that verbally verbose about it, but how often do we actually react like that? Hey, you're being called to be patient right now. I will not be patient. Why do we do that? Because I actually think that we don't like waiting because waiting means we're not in control. Waiting means we have to surrender. Waiting means that it's not on your timeline. It's not in your story. It's in your story, but it may not just be yet. Abram chooses in a moment of frustration to actively listen to the voice of Sarai because he's grown impatient with the hand of God. Can I ask you, where have you grown impatient with the hand of God? Where have you grown impatient? And why does he listen to the voice of Sarai? Well, look at, what, look at what she says. She goes, I am going to build a family. Well, God has promised Sarai. Sarai now takes responsibility to do on her own. Why are you going to sleep with, with, with my servant, Hagar? Because I'm going to build my family. She takes responsibility for that which God has promised. When God says, this was always meant to be in my hands. Friends, for some of you, it's been a long season. It's been a hard season. There have been things that you've been hoping for and waiting on. And you're like, God, this is just difficult. And I just would join you in saying, yes, waiting is. But if God gave us everything we desired or wanted, when we desired or wanted it, I wonder how much of us would actually truly choose to seek him or wait upon him or rely upon him. Because it's in the waiting we find where our trust actually lies. It's in the delay that we see where we run when things are hard. It's when things get tough. When we go to television, entertainment, relationships to find solace, when God's saying, hey, I know you're waiting, I know it's difficult. What I'm revealing to you is that your trust was never in me. See, God's delay, friends, is not God's denial. God's delay is not God's denial. Too often we think that when God is silent, it means no. But usually it's an invitation to trust deeper because God can see that which we cannot. To trust a story we cannot see, to trust a story we cannot comprehend, to trust the one who holds the pen. See, what, what's, what, what the problem with Abram is, is that he has passive trust in God and active control of his story. But what God is calling us 
to today. What God calls Abram to is in saying, Abram, you need to not have active control of your story. You want to know why? That's how things went wrong in the first place. I'm calling you to passive control in your story and active trust of me. Why? Well, remember the stars, Abram. Why does God do that? Because he's saying the one who in the beginning says, let there be light and cast the stars out across the universe is the same one who sees the future that one day Jesus will come riding back on a stallion with his tame name tattooed on his side as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The God who sees the beginning, the God who sees the end is the God who's firmly planted in your story right now saying, trust me, I know how this plays out. Active trust in God. And passive control of our story is the ultimate call of faith because it's saying, God, I can't see what you can see, but I'm choosing to trust who you are, not just what I need you to do. And the problem is when we have this problem of patience, when we struggle to be patient with God and we act in control, it usually leads to broken situations and broken relationships. And that's exactly what happens in this story. The story goes on in Genesis chapter 16, verse 3. After Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Hagar becomes pregnant. Now, if you notice in this story, no one but the narrator and someone else later calls her by her name. Everyone else rejects her as a slave. So you can imagine a woman who has been nothing but a possession for her whole life, finally, she is carrying the baby of her master. She is place, she is purpose, she is value. She feels seen. And so she starts to establish a bit of pride in her place in the family. And what we start to see is how Abram and Sarai chose to control the story actually leads to further brokenness in the story. Sarah, Hagar starts to rise up and hold her, her mistress in content. Her mistress turns around Sarai and gets angry. And what we see, friends, is ultimately what happens when we choose to not trust God. Not trusting God is the root of all sin. When I say sin, I don't mean naughty things. Some of you may be new to faith today. You're like, oh, he's talking about sin. He's talking about that naughty thing I did yesterday. No, sin is a disposition of our heart that results in the fruit of our actions. Sin is a moment in our life where we go, God, I don't want to trust you. I want to trust me. And so I'm going to walk in my own way. And when we sin, we have to recognize that sin is not just about doing naughty things. It's actually about breaking the fabric of the story. That sin, friends, is not just an action to be forgiven. It's actually an action that has consequences. And you see played out in the story of Abram, a really harsh reality for us. So the second lesson is simply this. It's simply this. No, it's none of those. Clearly, I didn't have that slide in there. There you go. It's the consequence of sin. And I want to sit here just for a moment. I'm a follower of Jesus. And that means that I believe that my Savior has died a death I could not die after living a life I could not live. And he has forgiven me of all the things I could possibly ever do wrong. And I've been set free to live in that freedom. And there are so many of you here like that. But the truth of sin, friends, is it's not just an action to forgive. It's also an action that has consequence. And, and part of the times when we hear God being like, hey, don't, don't walk over here and trust yourself. Come trust me. Hey, don't sin. Don't fall short of the glory of God. We think that it's just about God just trying to keep our behavior in what he thinks is best. 
But actually what Jesus, what God is trying to do is say, hey, there is a way that reality is meant to function. is a way to life and life to the fullness. And I, the creator of all things, want to offer you that life and offer it to you to the full. Come play over here in my will and my trust. And when we play over here by ourselves, we walk our own way. What we're ultimately saying is, I want to write my own story. And we break a story that we did not create because we long to write it. And this is what happens. And then we think that all we need to do is go, hey, God, forgive me. But we rec- fail to recognize the reason why God doesn't want us to sin is not just because he's sick of forgiving us. He's never sick of forgiving us. It's because what we do has consequence. And what you see in the story of Hagar is that even though God goes on to forgive Abram and Sarai, is that the consequence lasts not just for this generation, but for generations to come. Friends, have not our lives been marked by the sins of men and women who lived long before us? And we fail to remember and see everything we do has consequences. That's why the safest place for us to exist is God, you need control of this because this world has been broken time and time again by the sins and failures of men and women. I choose to trust in you. This is what we see happen in this story. See, failure to trust in God always leads to broken relationships. See, even when Sarai and Abram recognize their disobedience, they don't run to God. They do what we all do when we stuff up. Sarai's like, it's your fault, Abram, which is the most confusing part of the whole story. She's like, you handle this. And Abram handles sin the way some of us handle sin. Hey, it's not my responsibility. You take care of it. They both run away from the problem that they both created. Instead of running to God and saying, God, how can this be healed? How can this be redeemed? How can this be restored? They continue to control the story even more, and it gets worse. This what should be reminded to us, friends, that the safest place for us to take our mistakes, the safest place for you to take your shame, the safest place for you to bring the things that we have done where we've fallen out of trust with God is not to run from Him, but to run to Him. So He can interrupt the brokenness and bring healing and bring redemption and bring restoration. But the story doesn't go there. The story finishes with Hagar, who becomes the central character. And it's, it's a moment where we should mourn this. The story of Hagar is not one where, where it leads us to easy rejoicing, but one which is uncomfortable. See, friends, because sin is not just about a consequence to Abram and Sarai. It's the sin that is Hagar's life as well. Hagar becomes the collateral damage of other people's decisions. Now, some of us in the story are Abram. We're like, man, I, I can relate to Abram right now. Like, I'm just sick of waiting, and so I just do what anyone says. Some of us in the story are Sarai. We love to control the narrative, and when we can see an easier way, we step in and we make the change. But the hard part about this for me is I I just felt in my heart today that some of us in this story can relate to Hagar. That we know what it's like for our lives to be the collateral damage of other people's sins. It's so painful in this story. When When you read the story of Hagar, the first agency that Hagar is given is when she runs away from the mistreatment of Sarai. It's the first time it seems that she's empowered to make a decision. I've got to be high, honest, friends. We need to know that this story is not just about the problem of, pain, of, of patience, not just about the consequence of sin. We have to ask the question, where is God in all of this? Because that's an important question. And some of you, if you have become the collateral damage of other people's sin, there is a hurt that has been churned in your heart against the way of God. And I, would, I just want to highlight that in my experience... And what I understand about the Word of God is that humanity has been given moral autonomy. That mankind and womankind, we can make decisions. But 
we should not allow the moral autonomy and the moral failure of humanity to mar the image of God's character. That God has allowed humans to have freedom of choice. It does not mean that God is absent. But even when we stuff up what we see, the character of God made evident in how he redeems what man broke, he can heal. And in this story, friends, what I love is that when I look about, when I look at Hagar, maybe you're here in the room today and you know what that feels like. You know what it's like to be hurt by the church. You know what it's like to be hurt by Christians, by humanity, by parents, by family, or even by yourself. And you're like, this is just hard. Where is God in all of this? When we ask, where is God for the oppressed? Where is God for the weak? Where is God for the marginalized? All throughout the Bible, God responds in consistency with his character. That when humanity has wanted evil upon others, God steps in, steps up, and mercy and justice ring out in the story. Why? Because God knows that if we're going to look at humanity, we will be very, very discouraged at his character. So he says, look at what I am doing. Look at how I interrupt. Look at how if they'd brought the story to me, I could have healed it far earlier. So Hagar runs and verse 7 says this quite simply. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Hagar is by herself in the middle of wilderness that maybe sometimes you know what that feels like. Can anyone see me right now as I've run away from everything that's been done? And what does the Bible say? That the angel of the Lord found her there where she probably didn't know she could be found. And he addresses her. This is beautiful. When Abram and Sarai talk about Hagar up until this point, it's always been the slave. What is God's first words to her? Hagar. He knows her. He sees her. Servant, slave of Sarai, he knows the story she's come from. He says, I have not been absent. My heart grieves what has been done to you. Now know how I will respond. Friends, maybe you're Hagar in this story, and I need to let you know God says your name today. He says, Hagar, I have seen. I see you, and my mercy is for you. So in a moment where Hagar is alone, God steps in and he starts to promise her the same promise that he gave to Abram. He says, you were never meant to be part of what I gave to Abram, but you were forced to be. So now I shall give you something of greatness because what was done to you was wrong. It's not your fault. So something shall be fulfilled through you. He says to her, you will return to your mistress, Sarai, but go back and submit to her and I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. What does God do? He says, you will not shift into obscurity. I will make your name great. And, and here, before I finish with the character of God, I just highlight once again how serious the consequence of sins are. The nation of Hagar that comes from her son Ishmael, many commentators, theologians, and historians would believe would be the Arabic peoples. In fact, if you talk to anyone that is a follower or adherent to Islam, they will say that we are of the Abrahamic faith and our faith comes from our father of the faith, Abram, but it's Abraham, but it's been fulfilled through Ishmael. And why do I say that? Because when we don't understand that sin has generational consequences, then we forget that this stuff, this breaking of God's reality can last far beyond your life. And when we look at our Islamic brothers and sisters, men and women around the world who follow a different faith, we have to recognize there is a story behind why they believe what they believe and who they are that does not call for judgment from us, but love and hope that God will redeem and restore the narrative that man has broken. 
That is the hope. Islamophobia is not the way of the Christian. It is not the way of Christ and it is not the way of God who is weaving a greater story together than we can see or we could hope for. We should be praying for all peoples, friends. And so we see in this story, finally as it lands, the final revelation is the character of God. The problem of patience, the consequence of sin, but God steps in and the character of God rocks up. He sees the outsider. He sees the abused. He sees the oppressed. He sees the marginalized. And here is why it's so beautiful. Is not only does he step in and say, Hagar, I'm going to redeem your story. He calls her back. We're like, well, why did he call her back? Because she was a woman who had nothing but slave as a name and a child on the way. She had nowhere to run. God sought provision for her by saying, go home to Abram. And Abram's forced to take care of this slave and this child until the child is 13 years old. She is given safety. She is given honor. She is given value by the hand of God. Can you imagine how awkward it would have been for Sarai and Abram sitting in a tent being like, well, you know, she's left, so that's all done. And the next thing that happens in the story is Hagar rocks up in the tent being like, God told me to come back and you've got to look after me. And there's this moment where Abram for the next 13 years lives with the physical representation of what it looks like to control the story. And when he sees how God is blessing Hagar. But I wonder how that must have felt for Abram who has realized the failure of his mistakes. He actually dropped the ball. Does this therefore mean that the promises of God are not for Abram? Does this therefore mean God goes, Abram, I'm done with you because you clearly were done with me? What is so beautiful about God's story is his promise for us, his promise for humanity was never dependent on your character. God's will for your life was never dependent on you perfecting his will for your life. The very next moment in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 to 2, what we see is not God rock up in Abram's story and say, hey, let's talk about how you failed. He says, Abram, will you walk before me in faithfulness again? He calls him back. Friends, maybe you're here today and you're sitting and going, Michael, I'm not patient with God. Join the club. Me neither. Hey, Michael, I've got problems of control, not just with God, but in my life. I don't know what surrender looks like. You're in the right place. Maybe you look back over your story and you're like, I see the consequences of sin rolling out. And I want to let you know God wants to interrupt. He wants to redeem and he wants to restore. Because the promise he made is still for you. Not because you're good enough, but because he is good enough. Not because you got it together, but he's got it together. Not because, hey, it's going to be okay. You're never going to stuff it up again. But because God was not shocked by Abram's dissension. He was not shocked by his sin. God knew that even after this moment, you read the story of Abram, it doesn't get better, friends. He continues to drop the ball. But not only him, his son, his son's son, the nations that come from them, even when God redeems the people of Israel from Egypt under the leadership of Moses, they fail time and time again. And all the way through the Old Testament, it's like every single person seems to not recognize that when you're in control, you get off a stage. But when God's in control, things go well. They fail to recognize. So what does God do? How does God respond to our ability to get it wrong? He does one thing for all of time to say, let me show you my character. Let me show you I'm trustworthy. He takes on the appearance of a man. He calls himself Jesus. 
And in fully human flesh and full divinity, he walks this earth and says, you haven't been able to do it with the distance, so I'm going to come in nice and close. I want you to look in my face. I want you to see the mercy in my eyes. And even when we, not they, when our sin, when our rebellion clung Jesus to a cross, his words were this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They think they're in control. Show them that we are in control of the ultimate story and we offers us redemption and hope and life again. This is the narrative of the Christian faith, friends, that God interrupts the story of Hagar and he interrupts the story of Abram and Sarah and calls all home to him. God's saying the same to you today. He's asking you this question. Will you trust in me? And when you struggle to trust, look to the cross. What else should Jesus have to do to show you he is trustworthy and to lay down his life? What else? What would make it enough for you to trust God that he would give it all so you could have it all? Friends, he is trustworthy today. He is trustworthy. Would you allow him to control the narrative and the story? Would you stand with me? As we finish today, I just want to recognize today's a little heavier. And, and that's okay. It's okay sometimes that we allow the text to read us well, to just reveal what God's doing in our hearts. And after the service, if God's churned some stuff up and you, our associate minister Fiona's going to invite you down the front for prayer, we'd love to pray. We'd love to pray that you'd let go a little. But there's a great prayer written by a guy named John Wesley, who's a, one of the fathers of the faith of the denomination we're a part of. And he wrote a prayer in a point in his life where he realized he loved being in control. He loved it, just like me, just like you. And he loved it so much that he had to write a prayer that would allow him. Some people are like, wow, there was a lot more. I'm glad he didn't use all the slides. As a reminder to himself, what it meant to have faith in God. And I want to read this prayer over you today. I didn't do this in the first service because it's the 10 a.m., so you get a special. I'd just love you to hold your hands out like this, but in clenched fist. I'm going to read this prayer over you, and then the team's going to come, and, and they're going to sing. This prayer is called the Covenant Prayer, and um, our team a couple of years ago wrote this into a song. And when you're ready, I wonder if you would just actually open your hands. Not yet. Listen to the prayer and then listen to the song when you're ready and just say, hey, God, as an act right now, I want to respond. Maybe it's a surrender of relationships. Maybe it's a surrender of finances. Maybe it's actually going, God, I've actually really stuffed some stuff up. I need you to interrupt. Now I'm going to tell you it's time. Let me pray for you. I'm no longer my own, but yours. God, put me to what you will. With who you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O oh wonderful, holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Father, we pray these words today.
they're not easy words for us to pray. I've got to be honest, God, I actually think I can do a better job sometimes than you do. But time and time again, I've been proven wrong. I want to believe, God, help our unbelief today. We want to trust, help our mistrust. Reveal to us where our faith is collateral damage. And we need it to be restored and redeemed. Teach us to trust you today. Reveal your character to us in this moment. Friends, just wait here as we sing and worship. And as you feel led, you can open your hands and join us as we sing. But not before you're ready. Make this a moment between you and our Father.